Welcome to The Scope with Dr. K, where together we can reimagine GI care. Welcome to The Scope with Dr. K. I'm Dr. Kaczynski. We're going to open the show today, as we always do, by stating that the goal of this series is to present you with a broad scope of value-based care issues, mainly involving the field of gastroenterology, but also outside of GA as well. In this podcast, we are refocusing on the health plan space, the entities where decisions about coverage are actually made. Health plans are focused on value-based care today, and our guest has been knee-deep in this for a long time. Florence Kariuki is the Chief Clinical Officer of Health Recovery Solutions, a leading telehealth and remote patient monitoring company facilitating behavioral change to improve patient outcomes. We asked Florence to come on the show a few months ago based on her previous work at Horizon Blue Cross of New Jersey, where she served in various leadership roles, focusing on innovative alternative payment programs, value-based programming, population health management, social determinants of health, and total cost of care management strategies. Welcome to the show today, Florence. Wow, Larry, thank you for having me. Well, this should be a great discussion, and I can't wait to hear your answers to key questions I'm going to ask you. So let's begin. Tell us about the value-based care initiatives that you created at Horizon Blue Cross of New Jersey. Yeah, Larry, I think you put it really well. I have been knee-deep in value-based care programs. It probably is one of my most exciting topics to talk about. Um, I joined Horizon Blue Cross Blue Shield around 2011 at the very inception of their value-based care, uh, care program initiatives. Um, you know, we had, everything was in pilot stage. There were patient-centered medical homes, affordable care organizations, and episodes of care programs. That's where we started out. I think we had eight practices participating. Um, so from the very ground up, you know, paper-based chatting, Excel spreadsheets, uh, nothing really structured. And so I was part of the team that helped build Horizon's patient-centered medical homes, as well as evolve the ACOs and episodes of care programs, thinking through the quality metrics that we wanted to measure, the patient satisfaction surveys that we wanted to roll out, the total cost of care approach. You know, was it going to be a shared saving model? Was it going to be um, some other type of model? But all of that end-to-end -end is part of what I've been very fortunate to do in my experience. Is It's really built from ground up you know, what it takes to implement a value-based care program. And part of that also included, you know, going out to physician offices and, and educating them as well as to, you know, what is a PCMH and why should you even worry about having one or running your practice as a patient-centered medical home? What is centralized care coordination? What are these metrics that I need to track and get paid for? So that, that whole experience, um, was, was a great learning opportunity for both us as a health plan, as well as the providers. Um, and then to your point, um, Larry, not only did we build patient-centered medical homes and episodes of care programs and ACOs, I was also very fortunate to branch out of very specific focus on value-based programs, but also thinking about initiatives that can help value-based programs be successful. So as part of the work that I've done with Horizon, um, we launched other initiatives such as ED navigation programs where we partnered with hospital systems and we designed from ground up, 
you know, what it would take to put an ED navigator in the ED setting, you know, what should they do in that setting um, to identify patients that may not, not necessarily need to be in the emergency department and how do we help them navigate into alternative sites of care and make sure that they're getting that continuity of care even after they leave the ED, they're connecting back to a primary care provider. We launched transitions of care programs where we placed um, transitions of care nurses in uh, home health settings or in skilled nursing facilities or in uh, post-acute facilities of different kinds and really made them a connection point before the patient got discharged out of the hospital. They would meet with the patient, you know, work with them, build a care plan and then follow the patient post-acute. And that was really effective with ensuring that effective transitions of care experience. Um, some of the programs that I also launched that I'm really excited about um, are around palliative care and social determinants of health. And I will really highlight the palliative care program because it's one that was a little bit disruptive in nature, Larry, in that we were focused on a commercial population that was still seeking curative treatment and embracing the fact that palliative care is such an important part of patient care and ensuring that um, you know, patients are receiving the quality of care that they need to manage their symptoms and the burden of illness that they're experiencing. And so in a model where there isn't any uh, reimbursement, there's no coverage for palliative care outside of a hospice confinement, uh, we build a program that was paying for palliative care services alongside curative treatment for commercial membership, working with community-based palliative care providers. I think that was a really uh, a great experience for me. I think it was very well received by providers. Um, we learned a lot about the impact of providing that type of support for patients who are in a value-based care setting um, as a really effective way of keeping them out of the hospital and keeping those readmissions down. Um, and then lastly, I think one of the programs that I was involved in you know, a little bit before I left Horizon is the Social Determinants of Health Initiative. Again, another very large program focused on over 3,000 patients um, looking to leverage algorithms with identifying patients that could be um, experiencing some type of um, uh, health disparity or limited access to whether it's transportation or nutrition um, or you know, health literacy issues, and then providing that wraparound support that would help them with improving their patient outcomes. So again, not only focused on the value-based programs and the contracts and the financial model, but also the initiatives that one can put in place to really help make sure those programs are successful. So that's been my experience, Larry. I'm really proud of it um, and looking forward to share more of it as we move along. Well, I, I really, really love the fact that you took a bottom-up strategy building mm -hmm. these programs. Healthcare is always said to be a, a, a local uh, structure. And Very sometimes so. you, you got to get into the weeds to get to the bottom of things to, to really make improvements. And I also applaud you on the SDOH focus. You know, health equity today is, is such an important thing. And, and, and we can prescribe drugs. We can, we can do a lot of innovative surgeries, but if the person can't take those drugs because their life situation doesn't allow them or their financial situation. So it, that, that's, that's amazing. So what's been your biggest challenge? I like that question, Larry. Um, I, I'll speak about it in two different ways. Um, 
I'll speak about it from a program implementation standpoint. I think one of the biggest challenges has been just um, seeing the slow transformation um, in mindsets that has taken place as value-based programs evolved. Um, I would have loved to see um, much, you know, from an optimistic standpoint, a much quicker embracing of the promise that exists in a value-based programs in the opportunity to optimize patient experience, optimize patient satisfaction, quality of care, and reduce cost of care while in the process. Uh, but I think one of the challenges that I found is, um, you know, from a provider standpoint, you know, it was one of many other things that the provider was doing, understandably so. Uh, but with that said, I think it, it slowed down or limited uh, the capacity or the capabilities that the providers were willing to put in place or the practices were willing to put in place or hospital systems. Um, to be able to make these programs successful. I think for the most part, um, the idea behind a value-based program is, is very well-meaning and great intentions, but to actually operationalize one requires that level of involvement and engagement that providers aren't always able to avail. And so it was challenging to be right in the thick of things, trying to build these programs, trying to get them off the ground, but working with partners that, you know, again, were, this was one of many other things that they were doing, again, understandably so, because they are providing patient care and, you know, dealing day to day with several other things. Um, so that is one of the challenges I would highlight. I think the other thing is um, just the challenges that you experience, even as a health plan. I know many times people think that, you know, the health plan has all these funds that are unlimited and accessible and should be leveraged in different kinds of ways. Um, but there is a lot of vetting that goes into what programs should be implemented. And so, you know, the process of, um, you know, vetting and, and making sure that the program that we want to launch actually makes sense. It can be sometimes uh, complicated. And especially for me as a nurse, sometimes things just made sense. You know, it made sense to provide palliative care, period but I have to be able to prove um, that it also makes sense to build a benefit around that, right? So it's all of the other infrastructural things that have to go in place with really getting a program off the ground. Um, but the whole process was enjoyable. I, I really wouldn't take anything back. Um, I think there are challenges which fortunately evolve and get less over time, but there were challenges nonetheless. Well, you know, I, I'm sure there's, inertia in the provider space mm -hmm. to getting started in these things because most providers really are not structured yeah. to enter value-based care. Uh, the infrastructure in the practices just doesn't exist. They're used to taking care of one patient at a time mm -hmm. and not thinking on a population basis. And, you know, I, I yeah. know you're, you're, you're faced with the same thing uh, at yep. the health plan itself, the inertia of moving a moving a health oh, yes. plan in the right direction. I think, I think a tugboat pushing on a container ship can, can maybe get more movement sometimes than, than uh, it takes uh, with a big health plan. Yeah, so, you're absolutely right. And actually one more challenge, Larry, that I would add to that is that for some of these programs, you really don't get to see the effect uh, in a short term. Uh, and so when you evaluate the effectiveness of the program, um, and you have somebody from the actuary department, you know, trying to determine whether or not there was any impact. Um, that can be challenging where you are seeing, you know, to the very good example that you gave, Larry, you know, patients aren't, you know, 
adhering to patient care because they don't have transportation, they didn't show up for the appointment because they don't have a vehicle. But how do you show that because you paid for an Uber, um, now this patient's cost of care is going to be less? You know what I mean? So sometimes the there wasn't an easy match between the outcomes and the program. Um, it's a good challenge to have because the, 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 the hope is that over time you will see the, the effect of the program. But again, when you're working in the confines of needing to demonstrate impact in a six month pilot or a one year pilot, um, those are the issues you have to contend with. You know, on the provider side as well, you know, my, my 35 years of practice, if I suggested to my associates that we were, we should embark on something. Their first question is, well, what's, what's, what's our return? What are we going to get in return for this? Right. And we all, we all are challenged with that, you know, to make sure that the change we're proposing will benefit the organization we work for. Okay. So key features, key features. I want, I want to pivot a little bit into, let's, let's, let's forget for a second that we're dealing in total reality here. And if you are going to design the ideal value-based proposal for a plan, you're a provider now, and, and you're going to propose to a, to a plan a value-based proposal, what would the ideal one look like? What would, what would, what would make the, the health plan say, uh, we, sh we should give this, look at this. some further yeah. thought? Yeah. I think that's a fantastic question, Larry, and I think one that should be asked more, right? Um, so a couple of things I would do. Um, number one, I would find a problem that the health plan is trying to solve for a significant member volume, right? So I would find a high opportunity for um, a condition, for instance, that's driving costs for a health plan or... Um, a high cost drug that has become uh, you know, a challenge for the health plan from a me uh, cost management standpoint. And I would build my program around that because number one, when you're talking large volume, then you have audience because if you actually impact the interventions or the outcomes that you're promising, it, it's going to be large and it's going to be uh, meaningful. So I would find I would find out what are the highest cost drivers for the health plan. And right now, you know, it's it's a lot of the specialty drugs, for instance, that are truly driving costs. And it's it's also, again, you know, some of these high cost conditions um, that, you know, for years and years, there's been so many different kinds of interventions, but nothing truly fully figured out because I think many times providers or vendors or third-party companies only come in at one angle. So they're providing one intervention that they came up with. I would build a program whose design would leverage a couple different intervention modalities. So I might put in um, centralized care coordination as part of what I plan to do. I would leverage telehealth and remote patient monitoring as part of what I, what I plan to do to help improve that patient engagement. I would make sure my physicians are very engaged, leadership is engaged, um, because that in itself can be a game changer for a, a, a program. Um, I would also make sure that um, in how I design my proposal, that I am either willing to go in and take some risk yeah. or offering a ramp up that at some point in time, I'm you know, telling the health plan that I'll be willing to take some downside risk. I think very many health plans would be attracted to a proposal that 
includes the prospect of um, downside risk. There's a lot of um, opportunity for gain sharing, but many times providers are, you know, don't have a lot of tolerance for the downside risk. So I would make sure there is some, the financial model um, also reflects uh, what I intend to do from a quality standpoint. So we, which are the metrics that I anticipate as part of my program implementation, I am going to impact the HIDIS metrics. I would tie them back to the health plans, Medicare stars or their NCQA HIDIS goals, so that that also is another value for them. So not only am I lowering costs for many of their members or as many as I'm able to touch, I'm also helping hit their Medicare stars or their NCQA HIDIS goals. Um, and then from a patient satisfaction standpoint, I would make sure that my program includes processes that will measure patient experience. We will track, we will have things that address any issues that are raised uh, from the patient's feedback. And so when I come back to a plan to report on the program, I'm not only talking cost, I'm also showing impact on quality, how I've helped their style ratings. Um, and I'm also showing impact on their patient satisfaction because at the end of the day, the value-based programs are built primarily on the, on the triple aim, now quadruple aim, uh, which is the total cost of care, quality, quality improvement, and patient experience improvement, and then obviously provider improvement, bringing in that quadruple aim perspective. If I'm able, and I think a, a good program should do that as well, is to also look at the provider feedback as you implement the program. So showing, uh, I would bring a proposal that touches on all of those key things that health plans are interested in and are looking to have in their programs. And like I said, taking risk is, is huge. Um, and it's not as much of that is happening again, understandably so because providers aren't feeling as comfortable yet, but I will build a program that has some promise down the road to take on some risk. Okay. I have to unpack a little bit of what you just told us because there's so much there. Let's go for it. Yeah. So what the plan needs. Mm -hmm. So how does the provider know? what your most significant issues are. So, and that's why I said you asked a great question that should be asked more of and more often. I found in my experience, and I was leading the value-based programs. I was, I led the primary care uh, PCMH as well as the episodes of care programs at different points in my career. Um, very often we didn't get on calls with providers uh, where the discussion was around hey, we're touching all of these patients that belong to you. What are some of the challenges that you're seeing on this patient population that I can help you solve? Because what many health plans are doing internally is analyzing, risk stratifying, you know, segmenting patients, and they're finding where costs is coming from and where different opportunities exist. And for the most part, they're coming up with interventions in, you know, from an internal standpoint, trying to think about ways to address those issues. Um, but if you're a provider that is already touching many of the members that you know are uh, um, attributed to that health plan, I would set up a meeting with a value-based provider, uh, a leadership person, and say to them, I'm touching a thousand of your patients every month. 
you know, and I would love to, I have some ideas, but I wanted to hear from you, what are the issues you're seeing with these thousand patients that I'm touching, that I can help you, and then I'd share my ideas and also hear from them to say, hey, while you're at it, are you able to reduce the cost of XYZ drug, we've seen a spike in this, maybe something you may not have been aware of, and now that you got yourself at the seat, you know, seat on the table, you get access to this information. I think other ways is leveraging existing relationships. Uh, many health plans obviously have that provider relationship with the health plan. And so, you know, when you're sitting on your meetings, negotiating contracts, you know, have a part B of the agenda and talk about something else, you know? So I think many times providers are very focused on just the issues that are matter to them at that point, again, understandably so. But if you're looking to design a program where you get some information and access to knowledge on what are the issues, the cost drivers that the health plan is focused on, you might need to take a step a little bit above and beyond your day-to-day -day operations and interactions with the health plan to get access to that information. Wow, that's a great suggestion. I think some of these large uh provider groups should take that opportunity. I'm, I'm going to break here for a second. If you have just tuned in, you're listening to The Scope with Dr. K. Our guest today is Florence Kariuki, Chief Clinical Officer of Health Recovery Solutions. Okay. Um, Florence, you know, our, you're a nurse by training and nursing has become one of the major solutions for the primary care physician shortage. Unfortunately, now it's created a shortage, I think, of nurses. Um, where do you see nursing going in the future? Um, what, I, I can only see it being more and more of use, nurses more and more of use in, in the provider space. They're going to replace the primary care doctor. Um, yeah, I think there's definitely going to be more and more of nurses moving into the advanced level type roles, nurse practitioner uh, levels. Um, and it, you know, it's, 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 it's been a long time coming. I think what we're seeing with the nursing shortage and with the migration into provider level roles, uh, because for many years, nurses have experienced um, a lot of dissatisfaction and burnout as a result of, you know, whether it's the bedside role, um, you know, not as much respect for the profession that they deserve. Um, so I would agree with you, Larry. I think part of the way out for many nurses has been to, you know, go back and get a master's degree and, you know, get into a provider level role. And, you know, more recently, we're seeing even more of just leaving the profession altogether and going into something completely different, you know, going back and doing an MBA and studying something different. Um, I think we'll continue to see uh, for a while, unfortunately, I think the nursing shortage is, is going to be around for a little longer. Uh, we are seeing, you know, telehealth as a way that many health systems and providers are also leveraging to try and alleviate or address the nursing shortage uh, concerns. Um, but I think again, in order to truly effectively address all of what we're seeing, there needs to be major policy changes with mm -hmm. you know, even how nurses are reimbursed um, and, and the retention processes that are set in a hospital system or in a provider system, uh, setting that allow for nurses to be able to effectively do their job and take off many of those administrative tasks off of their back. Uh, nurses have a really unique role, um, Larry, with even going back to what we were talking about from a value-based standpoint, with helping to roll out 
successful programs because by nature of profession, they have a very granular understanding of what patients need. And at the end of the day, an effective value-based program has to be successful in changing the patient's self-care management or how they're adhering to the, the, the plan of care or how they're staying out of the ED or how they're, you know, so all of that is what affects successful value-based program results. And nurses have the um, understanding of what drives patients, again, from that very granular level experience. And so I think that um, we'll see more of nurses taking different kinds of roles. I mean, I know I'm one, I've been in a health plan leading value-based programs. I think we'll see nurses um, finding other ways to leverage their experience in helping the healthcare industry advance in different ways. Um, I mean, I'm excited to see where this goes, but I think that there is much to do with addressing the issues that the frontline nurses are experiencing, because we do need uh, frontline nurses. Um, they do such impactful work taking care of patients. Um, so we don't wanna see the uh, continued avalanche. Um, we have to address that. Yep. You know, the shortage of physicians mm -hmm. spurred the growth in nursing as well. There's another step to this though, and we've talked a little bit about it in the call today, technology. Right. So, you know, our provider listeners here are, are concerned about the disintermediation of the provider-patient relationship, be it from a physician or a nurse. These are all being disintermediated with technology. Uh, is the future of value-based care going to be based more heavily on uh, technology uh, to steadily replace the human factor, do you think? Nursing me gets even a little scared when you say that, Larry, to the replacement of the human factor. Um, I, I don't think that there ever will come a time when 100% the human factor can be removed. I think of the, uh, technology almost like the option between taking a bicycle to work and driving to work. So you're, you know, when you drive to work, you'll get there much faster. You, you know, you'll, you know, you'll be able to do a couple more things than you might not be able to do while you take the bicycle. You might be able to stop over and get some coffee and still get there on time. You know, so the I see technology's role now, whether in value-based programs or even outside of value-based programs, as um, just an efficiency tool that helps us to be more effective. Um, it does, in fact, yes, reduce the human touch and the human involvement. Um, I, I think it, we're in such a pivotal time, Larry, where we, we do have to reframe our mindset on how we think of technology and maybe not view it so much as a disintermediation of uh, what we clinicians or providers do with our patients, but as a support system that can help us do a better job or touch more patients or do it with less uh, tasks that we had to do in the past. Well, I really appreciate you coming on today, Florence. This, this was wonderful. I, I could have listened to you on and on and on, uh, but all good things have to come to an end. So thank you very much for being on. Larry, thank you so much for having me. Like I said, this is one of my favorite topics to talk about, but thank you for having me. I really enjoyed talking to you. Well, it was to our benefit. Thank you, Florence. Thanks to the audience for tuning in. You can learn more about the show on the programs page on healthcarenowradio.com and lend your voice to the conversation on Twitter at HCNowRadio. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at SonarMD. 
We're bringing patients, providers, and payers together to reimagine GI care. Until next time, I'm Dr. K. Stay well. Thanks for listening. I'm Dr. K. Tune in with me next time to reimagine the scope of GI care. If we build it, they will join us.